Dr. Peter Barish attended Johns Hopkins University and the University of Michigan. He received a PhD in clinical psychology from Case Western Reserve University. He is clinical senior instructor in psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Since 1984, he has been in private practice in the Cleveland area with Horizons Counseling Services. His clinical approach is relational and supportive. He specializes in working with people with dissociative disorders and adult survivors of trauma. He also works with depression and anxiety. He is trained in EMDR and clinical hypnosis. Dr. Barish is the author of scientific and clinical articles on dissociation and dissociative identity disorder. He is a past president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Within the dissociative disorders field, he is known for having first highlighted the link between disordered attachment and the origins of DID. He also chaired the committee that produced the first set of treatment guidelines for adults with DID in 1993 and has participated in revisions of the guidelines. In addition to his writings on dissociation, Dr. Barish served as a script consultant for broadcast media and as a reviewer for several journals. He has also served as an expert witness in civil and criminal matters. In addition to maintaining a private practice, Dr. Barish currently works for the Cleveland VA Medical Center, where he evaluates veterans who have applied for disability compensation. He is not appearing on this podcast as a VA employee. The opinions he expresses are his own and do not necessarily represent the Department of Veterans Affairs or its policies. I was delighted to have Dr. Peter Barish on the podcast and to interview him. I very much appreciated his perspective and gained new insights as he clarified some of my concerns. He also answered some of the historical questions we had about treatment guidelines. We also shared a history of the VA as both of my parents worked in the VA as I was growing up. And we also did our postdoc residency for chaplaincy at a VA hospital. So while he is not at all representing the VA on this podcast, we shared that cultural history together and it was something that connected us from the beginning. Welcome, Dr. Peter Barish. The VAs, VAs can be an awesome place to work. I, I did my um, pre-doctoral internship at the Pittsburgh VA and I learned so much. Um, uh, I want to tell you a story about my experience there. The person who was uh, chief of psychology at that time, um, his name is Arnold Friedman, and um, he, has, uh, rec- he has recently retired from his private practice in, in Pittsburgh. Um, he, on my first day in the VA, he, he and I and another psychology intern went to see um, a veteran who had been admitted to the hospital because he had phantom limb pain. They couldn't figure out how to relieve it. Um, and um, he had lost his leg in a kamikaze attack on his ship during World War II. So that tells you how long ago this incident was. This was about 1980, when they really hadn't even uh, named PTSD yet um, or were just about to put it in the the DSM-3 at that time. So um, the man had phantom limb pain, um, which basically means he's experiencing pain in the limb that he lost. So... The pain is really coming from the central nervous system. So um, Dr. Friedman is totally awesome at getting rapport with people quickly. So he had never met this man. There was no reason this man would, would have to trust him. But within a few minutes, they had um, 
you know, a, a good working um, uh, sense of an alliance between them. And um, I was watching you know, along with my fellow intern um, and um, Arnie, uh, who is uh, who used clinical hypnosis for many years, uh, asked if he could help him to deal with his phantom limb pain with hypnosis. And the man said, sure. So um, Arnie helped him get into a hypnotic trance and had him go back and um, basically relive um, what happened when he lost his leg. Um, and at that point, the man uh, was really there and um, re-experiencing what happened in his trauma. Um, and the thing that came out that was new for him as he was reliving this experience was how much guilt he felt that he had survived and others had died. And in the most gentle way, Arnie suggested to him um, that, uh, you know, it might be okay to let go of that guilt for now if you really don't need it. And maybe you don't need to have your pain as a way to remember how guilty you felt. Um, wow. And then he said, and you know, this has been a very difficult memory for you to have. And if you want to leave it behind when you come out of trance, that's okay. Or you can remember it all when you come out of trance. Uh, so then he helped the man get out of trance and get reoriented to being in his bed in the VA hospital and medical floor. The man didn't remember what happened, but his phantom limb pain was gone. And in a six-month follow-up, it hadn't come back. Wow. So I learned two things from that. Um, the first thing I learned was how important it is to make a, a personal connection with somebody as soon as you can so that there can be the basis for development of trust. Yes. And the other thing I learned was the power of hypnosis. Um, so I did a whole year's rotation in, in that um, internship and had a lot of experience uh, working with traumatized people. But um, the other thing that I took from that is what you get from a mentor. Um, Arnie is one of the people who uh, is behind me in my imagination, obviously, um, that I can call upon anytime I need him. I can think about what it would be like if he were here right now, what would he help me do? Now, he is 92, and he's still alive and still in Pittsburgh, and I saw him a couple of years ago. Um, he didn't remember this incident, but he was pleased to hear about it. So all of us, um, whether we are somebody's client or somebody's therapist, have had experience with somebody that we can take with us and keep with us on our shoulder or standing behind us in some way to provide support during the difficult times that we have. And that was one of the people I, I learned that from. That's really powerful. I thought so. Wow. So before there was EMDR, there was hypnosis. And a lot of people uh, in those days, back in the 80s, used hypnosis to help uh, trauma survivors process what had happened, you know, abreact and, or relive it in, um, in a therapy session as a way to process trauma. Um, and many therapists still use it, and I do also, along with EMDR. Um, but it's one way to help people process what happened and to uh, kind of um, move away from reliving it so much. What do they do in a hypnosis session? I mean, I know it's unique to each person, but just generally, yeah. what is that like? Well, um, since um, the reason we're talking has to do with the idea, um, I just want to say that many people in the field understand that DID is, is a, um, 
a form of uh, hypnosis that people have developed to, to cope with trauma and to deal with daily life. So when people switch, when their alters um, take over, they're going through kind of a mini hypnotic moment of going inside and changing their focus of uh, what aspect of themselves or what part or what alter is on the outside. With DID, are very easily able to get into hypnosis in a situation where they feel safe, safe enough to do that. So it's really useful as a way to try and make some uh, communication with some of the parts that haven't presented themselves. It's also a way to help the parts learn to uh, get better connected to each other. One of, one of the first presidents of ISSTD, International Society for the Study of Trauma Dissociation, was a guy from Ohio, a psychiatrist named David Call. Uh, David unfortunately died before he took office in 1988, but David invented a technique called the conference room, which is imagining inside that uh, there's a big table in a conference room and that whatever parts of you, whatever alters are willing to be there can sit around the table and take a look at each other or talk to each other or listen to each other. It's a way to start to build some connections. Wow. So, so he developed it first, and then um, George Fraser, who's a Canadian psychiatrist, used essentially the same technique under a different name uh, called the dissociative table technique. Both of them published about this. So hypnosis is the way to help someone do that, to begin to use their resources of imagination and building bridges within to make some connections and get some cooperation going, or at least some negotiation for common goals. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really useful. How is EMDR the same or different? Well, EMDR is much more structured than hypnosis. It's got standardized protocols that um, the therapist follows um, unless somebody gets stuck. One way that it's similar, one way that it's different than hypnosis is the experience of EMDR is kind of like you're in two places at once. When you're doing the eye movements or hearing or watching the, the lights move back and forth, you are just allowing yourself to go with that experience and whatever feelings, memories, sensations, and beliefs in the trauma uh, that you're working with, uh, you're in them, but you're also uh, in the present moment connected to a stimulus in the room with you, the lights, the therapist's voice, whatever is going on. So you shuttle back and forth much more easily in EMDR between the past and the present, which a lot of people like because... You don't get so swallowed up in the trauma. You get to step in and out of it a little more. It's like you put your toe in the water, then your ankle in the water, and maybe your knee. And when you've had enough, you can just open your eyes or say to the therapist, stop, and that gets respected. With hypnosis, it's less. there's more of a sense of being in the, inside, reliving it, and it can get pretty overwhelming. Although there are ways to modify what goes on so that it's less so. That's amazing. Why are some of these being lost, which is maybe an overstatement or a generalization, but I mean, with the, and I know there's practical answers like managed care and limited sessions and. You mean, why is hypnosis not being used? Yes. Why are not more people doing that if it's so. I agree. Um, well, uh, Richard Cleft has been saying for years that um, knowing hypnosis is understanding it uh, is an essential part of being able to work with people who have DID, and I couldn't agree more strongly. Where things started to go wrong with using hypnosis was really with the onset of the false memory syndrome people, because they started to claim that hypnosis was causing people um, 
to develop false memories based on suggestions that the therapists gave them while they were in trance. Which was false, and we've come so far. Like, I feel like just now we're sort of rising above that and moving past it, which is the impact of it was like 20 years. Sure. So... Um, One of the reasons they got involved, uh, the false memory people got involved um, as strongly as they did in fighting the treatment of dissociative disorders was because uh, there were some people who recalled abuse and then went to sue their parents or whoever the perpetrators were. And then when they get into court, it turned out that some of their memories had been retrieved during hypnosis. And um, one of the... uh, uh, one of the uh, people who was on the scientific advisory board of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation at the time, Martin Orne, had really written a lot about why um, hypnotically retrieved memories shouldn't be admissible in court. And generally, they aren't nowadays. So by having uh, a scientific advisory board um, say that this was going on and that there was something called recovered memory therapy, it scared a lot of therapists who were afraid of being sued and scared some who were being sued out of doing this work. Um, A lot of really talented people dropped out of um, treating dissociation at that time, which is a real tragedy. And yeah, I do think um, things are coming back now. I feel like you've just answered a different question for me that I didn't even have words for. Oh, what was it? (laughs) Well, you know, next week is the ISSTD conference. Yes. And, so, and I wish I could go, but I can't. Right, me either. I have to speak somewhere else already. Uh, and, but at the same time, so there's me and a few other advocates for DID survivors mm-hmm. that got together at the Infinite Mind Conference in Florida. Uh-huh. And while we were there, we have planned a counter-conference during the same time as the ISSTD conference. Yeah, I saw that. That's really a cool idea. I wish I could listen in more, but I'm I'm seeing clients that day. Well, it's here's what we want to do though. Like I want to be clear yeah. that we are not like ISTD haters. I don't want uh, yeah. the media to misinterpret that or turn it around. Mm-hmm. But we want information accessible to survivors who don't have clinical access to that. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And we um, want it accessible to deaf people and blind people so everything is being transcribed everything all the pictures are having caption descriptions and it's also free and we're recording it so that it will all be either on the podcast or on youtube and so people at any time can go watch these or look at it and because of some people it's because of our limitations in our first year mm-hmm. there there I mean we're going to do our best and put on the best that we can or whatever you know but I one of the things that I talk about because I'm giving the keynote for this and one of the things that I talk about is how there's this strange gap of this 20 years mm-hmm. where almost nothing happened other than as far as research or new treatment other than older treatments being repackaged into smaller models or faster models or this or that, but not this full reclaiming. And I think part of it really is about what you just said and what happened with the false memory. Like we as a system, meaning clinicians and survivors together, not just the internal system, but the greater system as a whole have really been wounded by this. Oh, yeah. 
And it's taking time to recover from it. And we're just now getting our feet back under us. I'm really glad that's, that this is happening, too. And um, also that now there's some good outcome research. Uh, there wasn't much before. Uh, Colin Ross and his associates did a little bit. But now there's some published outcome research that's um, a lot um, a lot better that um, uh, Dr. Brand has, has spearheaded. Um, long-term treatment outcome studies with very clear goals and ways to measure progress. Uh, I think it's wonderful that that, that that kind of thing is going on because it wasn't present at the time. Um, when we first wrote treatment guidelines for DIT back in 1993. Right, right. So, and so what's happened in those 20 years... I'm using 20 as a generic number, but what's happened It's pretty in those, close, yeah. Yeah. What's happened in those 20 years though, while everyone like almost had to go on pause, is that people who were already in treatment just had to continue with what they had access to. And mm-hmm. then now there's like three or four generations of new survivors who can't mm-hmm. get access to treatment or have very limited access to treatment. And clinicians who are really good at what they do, but are scared to do DID, so to speak. And, yes. And so there's this divide, like a wound systemically between clinicians and survivors where it's hard not just to find a therapist, but as an educated person or as a person trying to educate others to connect or collaborate to yeah. to to bring healing to that wound to help all of us. Uh, yes, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, we used to have an Ohio Society for Clinical Dissociation that had annual conferences. 100, 150 people used to come. Um, and when um, Medicare rules changed so that it became impossible to really uh, give people any length of hospital treatment, uh, people would then end up going in the hospital and get told that we don't want to hear from your personalities. They're not allowed to come out here, right? Um, which was just destructive. Um, and this this happened around the same time as these lawsuits against therapists right. uh, became a serious issue in, in the in the 90s. So as a result, now um, I only know a few people in Ohio who work with DID, and only a couple in the Cleveland area. Um, two or three, so it's it's not good. Right. I I drive four hours to see my therapist in another Ooh. state. Because wow. Because it's the only one that I could find, and also she's really good, so I'm happy with her now, and I want to stay there. But mm-hmm. um, when Kathy Steele, I live in Kansas City now, and when Kathy Steele came to town, like 150 people came out of the woodwork to come hear her speak, and I was wow. like... Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. What have you been doing? I, I heard your presentation uh, or your um, episode about shame in which you discussed a lot of what she said. Um, oh, right. That was uh, very well argued. I agreed with some of what you said and, and disagreed with some, but you really did a good job at explaining what her position was and, and where you thought it was lacking or, or where you disagreed with it. I really got a lot out of listening to that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I have continued to study more of what she said and looked up more. And so I feel like that's a progression. It was just a, like, that's the one thing that's difficult about a podcast, right? Like, it's not the same person. So it's like a snapshot. 
So I feel like that's continued to evolve and I understand it more. Um, mm-hmm. But but I'm learning and trying to grasp it and hold on to it. In your office or, or with someone with DID, how do you explain what trauma and dissociation is? Well, I explain that trauma um, is basically defined as an experience that is too overwhelming to deal with at the time. So that's a pretty broad definition. Um, And dissociation is one of the ways that people cope with being overwhelmed at the time of a trauma. For example, I was um, driving home from work and um, the light turned green for me and another car um, hit the front end of my car as I was going through the intersection. Nobody was injured, but my car was nearly totaled. And... um, I remember the feeling of watching it happen in slow motion. I, you know, I slowed down the motion. My brain slowed down the motion uh, so that I wouldn't get completely swamped and terrified by what was going on. So the police came. They gave me a ride home, which was really nice. And uh, I was very calm until I got home. Then I started shaking. And then I was, you know, very upset. Um, even though nobody was injured, it was like I dissociated my fear until I got home and I was in a safer place. So those are small examples of it. So dissociation is a way that people protect themselves from overwhelming experiences. And um, when it starts, it's not voluntary. It's just something the body does because trauma happens in the body, obviously, and it lives there. And you've actually connected two pieces for me. Again, I'm really mm-hmm. enjoying speaking with you. <laughs> Thank you. I like talking helpful. with you also. Um. I just got the Coping with Trauma-Related Dissociation Workbook. Oh, that's really helpful. I just I've given it to it. a bunch of clients. So. Oh, well, I just got it for a group. And one of the things I was just reading about today was talking about time speeding up and slowing down. And that mm-hmm. was the first time I had seen it described. And now you've just talked about it. Um, mm-hmm. And so my brain is very, very focused on that because I just found words for that experience Um, yeah so i have a question a follow-up question sure that happen can that happen um over an extended time as well and not just in the crisis moment like what do you mean well so for example without going into detail Mm -hmm. just adverse experiences kind of list um in recent years both of my parents died and we fostered 70 kids and we adopted six with special needs and the youngest one has been on palliative care and in and out of the hospital for three years and i feel like all of this happened really quick and we didn't know any of it was going to happen and um it all like piled on each other faster that's part of how we ended up getting diagnosed because it was more than we could keep up with and so um that's when sort of everything fell apart and I got the diagnosis, found the therapist. Um, but what's happened is I feel like those, th- it all happened in about a period of three or four years. And I feel like those three or four years were like 10 or 20 years. Oh and, yeah. And yeah. now since finding the therapist and have been in therapy for a year actively like actually participating with her another therapist that didn't know about DID before her um and now the podcast and in group and the more that I talk about these things and process these things I feel like my life is speeding back up and it feels like not in an anxious way 
but in a I'm moving back towards a baseline kind of way. More like you're living in the moment instead of just being swept along by events that were too much so they had to slow down for you to cope. Right. Is that it? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, you answered your own question. Your experience tells you the answer. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, what you said was fascinating, but yeah, it makes complete sense to me. I never had anything like that happen, but I can see how that would, would have occurred with all those things going on so quickly at simultaneously and one after another. Hmm. So were you in the ISSTD as well? Um, I, yes, um, I, well, let me tell you how I got started working with, uh, dissociation. Um, the first time I saw somebody with a dissociative disorder, um, was on my first placement in graduate school, which was in a, a state mental hospital for people who were chronically mentally ill. It was a long-term hospital, and this was at the beginning of the um, the movement to try and get everybody out of these hospitals in the, in the community, which was an unfortunate mess. Yes, um, yes, yes. Yeah. Everybody in the hospital was diagnosed pretty much with what they used to call SCUT, which is a horrible acronym for schizophrenia, chronic undifferentiated type. And they were all on heavy, heavy doses of antipsychotic medication. So one of the people there, there were also people there who had been sent there by the courts. Uh, They'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity of committing uh, various kinds of felonies. And one of them was um, a woman who... um, look like the other patients in that she was heavily medicated and she was not able to do much other than walk around and ask people for cigarettes, which they had in the hospital in those days. Um, <laughs> she had gotten pregnant with it by another patient and um, the hospital was trying to decide how she would function in the community, whether she was going to be able to manage taking care of a baby and so on. The reason she was there was that she had set the house on fire and her, her mom had died in the fire. Oh, wow. um, so nobody really understood why she had done that. There was no clear reason as to why she'd done that. We know that um, she'd been abused. We, meaning my co-therapist and I, um, knew that she had been abused by her father, but we didn't know what the issue was with her mother. So while talking to her one day and asking her to think back to those days, now I know what happened. She switched and she relived the fire. Oh, um, goodness. After after doing that in the session, which like shocked the heck out of me because I'd never seen that happen with with a client before. I mean, like I'm telling you, I'd been in school for a year, in graduate school. I remembered something I'd read in the, in the police report that was in her file. Um, after the fire, while they were putting the fire out, she'd been found in the bushes down the street, um, just sitting in the bushes. And the police officer asked her what her name was, and she said Fig. So I asked her at the end of the session. Uh, what do you think that meant? And she says, well, I don't know. I guess that meant I was a figment of somebody's imagination. So I thought this was a great therapeutic breakthrough. Wow. Um, I went home all pleased with myself. Gee, I helped this happen. I came back the next day, and she didn't remember the session, any of it. She didn't remember that we'd met or, or anything at all like that. And I didn't realize what that was, that this was someone who had DID and had never been diagnosed until I saw the next person with DID, which was a couple of years later, in a completely different setting. It was an outpatient mental health center. And this woman had come in, and the reason she wanted help was, I want you to tell me, she would say with a smile, I want you to tell me why I stay with my husband when I don't love him. So we've been 
doing like standard talk therapy for a couple of months. And after she left, I made my notes and I opened my door and then she was sitting on the floor crying like a little girl. And um, in talking to her, I realized um, this was another part of her. So that was the first time that I, I saw that she had alters or parts. Uh, and I made some connections with other people in the area um, who had had some experience um, working with MPD, as it was called back in those days, and started to get very interested in learning more, obviously, so I could figure out what was going on and try to help her. So around 1986, I started going to ISSTD conferences and um, presented a couple of papers there and then got asked to chair the writing of the treatment guidelines that we first put out in 1993. So that's how I got into it. Oh, wow. The impetus for the treatment guidelines actually came from someone with at an insurance company. One of the one of the presidents of ISSTD had a good friend from medical school, who was the medical director of a large insurance company, who told him, "You know, you guys really ought to have some treatment guidelines because we don't know what to do with, you know, approving visits for these people." So then um, I got asked to chair the committee, and we spent three years writing the first set of guidelines. So it came from an insurance company. That's one of the few good things that comes from them. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you know why they've not updated them? Well, they, they have. I mean, the last update was in uh, 2011. So that's now on the um, ISSTD website. But that was before the DSM-5? Yeah. I don't think that's going to change much because uh, DID itself really didn't change much from DSM-4 to DSM-5. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's more research to support the guidelines, but I don't think the general recommendations have changed at all. Right. We talk about it at the counter conference. The thing that mm-hmm. we would like would just a change in language to from patients yeah. to clients because it's just more modern now. There's there's mixed feelings about that. And the, the re, I sort of alternate both because I work in a hospital now. But um, the word client comes from a Latin root meaning to lean on somebody. So some people don't like that for that reason because it implies a kind of dependence. Interesting. I didn't know that. I have worked in hospitals, and I do know that there the language is much more patients just because of the general population, whether they're psych patients or not. And so Mm -hmm. I understand that culture of it. But you gave me another piece I didn't know, and I'll be glad to explain that. I mean, people who are medically trained or work in medical facilities are going to use the word patient, and a lot of people with other training, psychology, social work, counseling, and so on, have been trained to use clients, especially recently. Do you think that there will be any big impact from the ICD-11 being with PDD instead of OSDD, with the partial Um, DID, or is it just a language change? I don't know. I never get to see the um, the actual definitions of those terms in ICD-11. It's really unfortunate that developmental trauma disorder didn't make it into um, uh, the DSM-5. It should have, because that really is complex trauma or complex PTSD. That was shocking. Yeah, it was terrible. That was really well documented in the Body Keeps score. Like, I, yeah. I appreciate that he provided that written history of it and gave the whole context of it. Yeah, that is such a wonderful book. I recommend it to a lot of people, and I, I learn a lot from it. Um, I wish I had training in body-oriented therapies. Um, my experience in as a patient or client, however you want to call it, in uh, <laughs> gestalt therapy and in gestalt therapy workshops, which are 
authored a lot around Cleveland. That has really helped me to understand how to be aware of what's going on in my own body as a client and also as a therapist. Right. Um, and to help clients, gently direct clients to just notice what's going on. Um, Interesting. How do you how do you manage that when you were working with the intensity of past trauma? I think it starts on the first day when somebody comes in. I tell them that you know this may seem odd if you've had other therapists and they haven't done that, but there are going to be times when I ask you to notice you know what's going on in your body. What do you notice physically? Because um, trauma lives in the body. Emotions are a body experience, and sometimes it's another um, uh, source of information for you to get more connected to you so i may ask you those questions let me know if it's uncomfortable but if it isn't uh just um play along with it and see what you find out how do you how do you manage it for yourself i i mean i'm i'm very much a skeptic about supernatural things but i can't explain exactly how this happens but um recently i had an experience this was last week um this i was sitting with somebody who does not have a dissociative disorder that I work with for several years. This is a person who's very depressed but has a lot of anger. And he was talking very softly in a very kind of depressed way. And I noticed that I was like tapping my fingers like that on the arm of my chair. And I, I, I thought, what's going on with that? So I, I asked him to just notice what's going on inside. And he said he was feeling agitated. And then he said I'm, he's feeling a little angry. And I, and I said, and I've been tapping in the arms of my chair. I guess I'm picking it up. So we had a laugh together about that, and then he was able to talk about his anger. Wow. So another, another experience also last weekend, because I see patients on Saturday. Oops, clients, whatever word you like. No, you're um, fine. You're fine. I was uh, working with someone who, who does have DID, and I noticed a feeling of moisture around my eye. And um, I said to the client, I don't, I don't know what you're experiencing, but I'm feeling some sadness. And then she said, I feel like crying. So somehow we had that shared moment of communication that I can't explain. Wow. Or if I'm holding my breath, I might say, I might point that out to someone. I notice I'm holding my breath as, as you're talking. And then they will often just take a, a little notice of what's going on internally and just go from there. That's amazing, though, that just being in tune with that. And that feels like a physical expression of some of those shame theory attunement talks as well. Oh, I think so, yeah. Of course, the risk is is um, if it's coming from something that the person has triggered in me, I have to be careful to own it. Right. So if I made a comment like that and they're going, no, I don't feel anything like that, then I'm not going to go, yeah, right, yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're not being honest with yourself. Um, I won't think that way. I'll say, okay, well, I'm not sure where this is coming from and just sit with the experience. How do you handle having to listen to the hard stories that people tell? I know there was a time some years ago when I, I stopped doing private practice for a while and, and did full-time uh, courtroom work. And then I missed it and realized that I had really gotten burned out because I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, so I was really happy to get back into private practice and to have had some, some therapy of my own to get better connected with what was going on with me. But, you know, it's not my trauma. Um, I can feel... A lot of feelings w about what has happened to someone else, but it didn't happen to me. 
and I'm talking to someone who somehow got through that and has resources that I don't possibly, I can't possibly understand at the moment, but we're going to figure it out together because that's a strength that they have that they don't usually credit themselves for. And oh, this is a really good quote I found um, from Harry Stack Sullivan, uh-huh. who was a, he was a psychoanalyst who died in 1950 or so. Right. He said, your emotional life is not written in cement during childhood. You write each chapter as you go along. Oh, that's powerful. Uh, it was very powerful. And he also said something to me when I saw this, this is really something I think about almost every day. He said, all of us are much more human than otherwise. And... I work with all kinds of people um, and assess people in the court system who had done just horrible things to others, uh, horrible things, um, the kind of things that we treat people for who've experienced those things. Um, and I have to keep that in mind. So I'm talking to some, if I'm talking to somebody who's been through horrendous trauma, they're a human being just like I am. And I want to understand what, what they brought with what what they brought to themselves, what resources they had, what what people that they had encountered in their life, what they built in themselves to help them survive it, and if I focus on that, then um, I tend not to get overwhelmed. But it also helps that I work in an office with people I trust, and if any of us really get swamped one day by what we're hearing, we can go and talk to each other, and that that helps tremendously to not do this work alone. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking that, I mean, that's such a, whether that's personal or professional, that's such a important thing, both having support and having connection with others, but also um, knowing those limits of when you need to care for yourself or oh, yeah. burnout or preventing. I know that I worked... Um, early in my career with adolescent sex offenders and then mm-hmm. and then later in private practice and then when my parents both died it was just bam bam and one expected and one not expected and I wasn't even aware of like the other layers that would complicate that grief and so I definitely during that season had to limit my practice and then when I found out about the DID I did not take clients in the office anymore it's just not my season for that to be appropriate and it was a challenge to adjust or to realize those self-care pieces in a new level I I think it's so important that you did that not just for you but for your clients oh absolutely Um, I'm sure you know of cases where people have um, had therapists who couldn't stay connected with them or who got blasé or cynical or doubted what they were saying because they were because the therapists were burnt out or because they had their own trauma histories and had not dealt with them. Right. So um, I, I do an, uh, an annual presentation at the VA to the postdoctoral uh, psychology students about private practice, and a lot of it is the nuts and bolts stuff of how do you get referrals and how do you get on insurance panels. But I always tell them at the end that many of us in this field, and I say myself included, have had some trauma in our life, and it makes a huge difference in the work that you, in how you can help people when you do get care for yourself first, or you know, so in the uh, while you're doing treatment, that you know you have your own issues and you're working on them so that they don't get in the way of your being present and available and genuine with your patients or clients. Right. And that's, I mean, that's such powerful wisdom. 
And I know that when I started private practice, I specifically didn't take trauma clients because I just... That was wise. I, right. Well, and I, but I didn't understand why. I just intuitively, I knew that was not an area for me. There are other people that are good for it. And I was okay with setting those boundaries. Mm-hmm. But the further I got, as I gained experience, I guess, over the years, the more I realized that trauma really comes in a lot of different forms. <laughs> It sure does. <laughs> and you can't just completely avoid everything. So, Well, one way you can is if the only kind of treatment you're going to do is cognitive therapy, because then you can not get connected to your emotions, and you can help your client not get connected to them, and it's all just <laughs> nice and superficial. <laughs> and I think it's a bunch of BS if that's all you do. Right. <laughs> but that's right. all they're teaching people in graduate school nowadays, and it's a darn shame. I mean, it's a great tool, but... You can't stop there. I feel like that's one reason I wanted to include the interviews on the podcast is because I feel like there are so many gifted clinicians who it goes back to it's not just the science but also an art. And I don't want that lost. And it's I want this oh, yeah. recorded history of these people that did real therapy <laughs> and, <laughs> and and who who have so much to give and to pass on and to, I feel like it's somehow it's time for it all to come full circle somehow. And I don't mm-hmm. know what that means or what that looks like exactly. And I don't know what small part I can play in helping that. But conversation seems like a place to start. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're doing so much. And one of the things you're doing is making available to the people who listen to your podcast information about what good therapy is like and what you could talk about in therapy. And you know, if you get a therapist who doesn't want to hear any of this, run away. Right. You know, you've got somebody who's going to hurt you. Right. And that the, and I think, I mean, kind of in an attunement way, again, if you start to resonate more with what therapy can look like and what the process can look like and mm-hmm. having an accurate depiction of that, then you're more likely to see it when you encounter it. And so Mm -hmm. we've moved from a society where the abuse cycle repeats or we have people who are abused when they're young and so then they get in all these abusive experiences when they grow up. Mm -hmm. We've moved now because of all these systemic wounds, I feel like, where people are abused when they're little, grow up and get in domestic violence or substance abuse or whatever else goes on. But then they also go through one bad therapist after another. And then... Mm -hmm stop like look for the people who are really knowing and then also for clinicians helping them connect to how to get trained or how to do it well and what that looks like for them on that on their side as well i think you're right um i like working with therapists as clients including uh, a few who have had did my first one in january at the conference in florida and i couldn't believe there was another one oh yes (laughs) It, it really surprised me. And then when I interviewed Susan Peace Bannett, mm-hmm. I had a very powerful experience with her talking about that and sort of coming out. I, get, I mean, it should have been obvious, but for me, my personal process, I'm sort of mm-hmm. coming out loud even to myself of this is my identity and it includes this piece and I'm going to have to deal with this piece. Yes. And you're doing the responsible thing at, at- Figuring out where your limits are for what you can and can't do while taking care of yourself, too. Right. That's huge. 
Um, I was interested about what you said about uh, working with adolescent sex offenders. What was that like for you? Um, interesting on a lot of layers. It was, I got assigned there for my, for my doctorate mm-hmm. is how I landed that job and how I got involved with that. And mm-hmm. my experience with them was that every one of them that I worked with had also been traumatized mm-hmm. and there mm-hmm. was a lot of what I now know and understand as triggers for myself. And so self-care was very hard for me during that season. Oh my goodness. But I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why at the time. And Mm -hmm. I, I resonated with them in a lot of ways that the other clinicians didn't. And so I didn't have a problem with running groups or walking into really escalated situations. It was not an issue of, I had bad boundaries with them. I don't mean like I was hanging out with them, but I think there was a, somehow a stigma and a fear that some of the other clinicians on the unit had that they tried to pretend they didn't have, that I was yeah. just in tune with and okay with and talked about out loud. And, and so I think in some ways, I had something to offer and in other ways I understood differently. But at the same time, there were, um, the scariest thing was always having to do the court reports and talk about recidivism and Mm -hmm. are they really okay to go home or not or feeling a responsibility for that. That was hard. Oh yeah, I can't imagine. I I used to say um, that um, I don't work with perpetrators and I know that when I said that, it was just a long time ago, it was out of my anger at what um, people had done to uh, my clients who I cared about. And I had to, I had to eat those words um, because I'd been working for some time with a woman who had DID and a history of ritual abuse and knew both those things when she came to work with me. I had to eat those words because she started to talk about how she had perpetrated as part of what had she'd been forced to do. Right. Um, and part of her very much liked that, and other parts of her were horrified by it. And she had to really sort of test me out to make sure I was okay with that. And uh, it was difficult for both of us, but it worked. So I was able to stick with it, and I stopped saying that. Those are those are intense layers to get to. Oh, my goodness. And where I worked and where I lived, there are... It's a very rural area area between mm-hmm. Kansas and Oklahoma and over into Arkansas and up into Missouri where the four mm-hmm. states meet. It's a very, very rural area. And my experience, and I know I'm stereotyping, is that there are these pockets of very, very good people and very, very scary people. And there was there's a lot of ritual abuse in these little pockets. And even when we were fostering, there would be like an entire oh, bus on a whole community and have like 30 kids at once that needed placement. And mm-hmm. it was really hard. And realizing that this was a layer prevalent in this area and there's no one treating it. There's no one talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so I found this therapist but yeah. very, very few people that even know how to deal with it. Um, so I mentioned David Call earlier um, and the um, um, 
conference room technique. Um, one of the other things that he said, unfortunately, he never wrote much, but he said this when someone asked him about what the goals of treatment were for MPD. Remember, it's the 80s, right? right. Um, he said, it seems to me that after treatment, you want a functional unit, be it a corporation, a partnership, or a one-owner business. Oh, I love I really that. like that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, he he really saw so much. I wish he'd lived to write more. That really gives a context and a familiar application to express that. Mm -hmm. The model of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very down-to-earth way of saying things because that's how he was. He was very much like an old farm kind of guy. Uh, very matter-of-fact in what he said, and he didn't put on ears, and he said what he thought. I really uh, wished he'd been around more to contribute to the field, but he unfortunately passed away. Obviously, anyone who chooses integration in in a formal sort of solidifying way and does mm -hmm. that work and it works well for them, that's wonderful. And I mm -hmm. think the idea of having functional multiplicity in some form on that continuum to focus on functioning and, and getting there as part of the process when something else feels so far away, I can see uh -huh. why that makes sense. I am... Yeah uncomfortable with the with and I, this is going to be a bit controversial for some of my audience but i am uncomfortable with identifying as plural as just for a lifestyle because for me and i'm just speaking for myself and i know i'm about to speak at the plural conference so that sounds contradictory but i don't want to identify with the maladaptive process that's a response to all that trauma. I don't want I don't want this to be the end of my story. And I know that they are trying to make it a positive thing and a welcoming thing and an accepting thing in whatever part of the journey they are in. Mm -hmm. But I like for me and maybe that's just because I have a clinical perspective, but for me I like the focus on the functional piece. I guess I take a, um, a matter-of-fact attitude about that, too. And part of what I, what I want to say here is based on an article that Richard Clough wrote in the 1990s um, that a lot of people got upset about. But the article really was trying to explain why people who had childhood trauma um, were more prone to be re-abused in later life domestic violence, getting raped, and so on than people who didn't have that kind of trauma. And if I remember the gist of the article, uh, what he said was if somebody has, you know, been harmed enough, then they may detach or dissociate from the warning signals that something bad is about to happen. And so they become what he called a sitting duck for getting re-traumatized. So that's one of the that's one of the risks I see in trying to maintain uh, a plural lifestyle without trying to share connections, perceptions. I mean, it's okay if somebody has parts, but if some, but if a part on the outside is not letting the others know that there might be some danger here, so that those gut feelings don't get passed around, then that that could be really risky. Right, I think that's true. Um, in a similar, I mean, different, but a similar way, even with the podcast or some of the YouTube channels or different things, if we mm -hmm. over-identify with that in and of itself that becomes an expression of it and an, and more of a maladaptive response as opposed yeah. to 
an expression for the process of it or a way to document the process of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's something we talk about with the husband a lot of uh-huh. making sure that our focus is that the podcast is an expression and not an identity and that we're documenting the process, not mm-hmm. becoming something that then is ongoing. That's good. I think that's important. And so many people um, with abuse histories end up in um, abuse, getting re-traumatized in their later relationships. Um, and they're unable to pull their resources together because dissociation helped them survive it. So they um, continue to do it and end up feeling more trapped than they may actually be. And it's just tragic. Um, it's really hard to help somebody to start to make connections inside when their life is dangerous today. Wow. I appreciate your time today. I would love to oh, talk to you again you know. sometime. <laughs> Anytime. I like, like talking to you as well. I really learned a lot, and you have a lot of context that really answered some of my questions. I'm, I'm even going to have to rewrite some of my keynote there to explain that because that's really helpful. I appreciate it. Your conference is on the 29th, right? Um, the thir- yeah, uh, the 30th, at the end of the month. I'm not, that's yeah. a time question. <laughs> <laughs> it posts on Saturday morning, I think. Ah, uh, yeah. My the the I'm doing one on, I'm doing the keynote and I'm doing a very, very simplified version on polyvagal and both of mine will oh, be wow. on the podcast. That's great. I intend to listen to it and some of the other presentations as well. I learned from my clients. I don't have this experience, this inner experience of separateness, except in those very small ways that I mentioned. So I'm not the expert, but my clients are. Well, I appreciate your receptiveness to me, even as a person. Oh, I why know, not? I, 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 I do. I, there's, I mean, my own shame issues, yes, but also that cultural wound has caused some separations. And so those of you that have been gracious enough to speak with me on the podcast, I think it's really, really, I mean, I get emails and emails and emails about it, but it's really bringing a lot of healing to the community as a whole and to individuals. And I'm grateful. Well, thank you for the opportunity to to talk and to talk to you. And um, I, I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast. And I'm looking forward to learning more from you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.